What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Brown Girl Green. In case you're new here, I'm Christy Drutman, and I interview diverse and dynamic environmental leaders and advocates who are working to find creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. So you may have heard of the term litigation and thought, what the heck is that? Litigation is a fancy word for the process of taking legal action. As we know, climate change is one of the biggest problems that we face today. To fight it, it requires tons of different tools in our toolbox for transformative change and action. And one of those tools that I want to highlight today is litigation. That basically means using the law to fight against, you know, the powers that be to be able to fight and protect ourselves and our communities. And I really want to talk about this uh, because I think the law, you know, is viewed as this dry and boring thing, but there's actually so much creativity and power in it when addressing things like climate justice. So yeah, in today's episode, I really want to highlight specifically how law can be a tool if it's of interest to you and how it has been used to address climate justice because I think it's an important conversation to have. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because a recent academic study found that 81 of the top 100 companies in America have put legal clauses in the fine print of their customer agreements that bar consumers from suing them in federal court. And instead, force them to pursue arbitration, or in some cases, file suit in small claims court. So in a way, it's like the system is set up to basically gaslight consumers and convince them that like everything's safe, the water is safe to drink, even though you might see that it's steaming, bubbling, it's the color pink, whatever. So basically, when it comes to the earth and climate change, you know, we have to be thinking about who does and who doesn't have a voice. And the law is kind of the lay of the land when it comes to the voice and the power and the decision making that goes behind environmental justice. So we need to talk about it. And, um, you know, today's guest comes from the awesome, you know, organization Earth Justice, who addresses, you know, the planet using litigation as a tool to address climate change and holding larger, larger corporations accountable. And one example of this is that they had a huge win for Alaska salmon in Bristol Bay. They were actually able to work with the EPA to prohibit the plan that the corporation had to dump their mining waste into Bristol Bay watershed. And Earth Justice actually used, you know, litigation to be able to hold that company accountable, pay the fines, and, you know, actually address the needs and the harms that they cause to those communities. And so, you know, I think it's really important that we dive into how you possibly tackle such a deep entrenched uh, broken system that creates the conditions for environmental injustices to exist and um, I really want this episode to inspire you all on how it can be possible and how people are using those tools to to fight for these issues and in this week's episode I interviewed Jeremy Orr who is a skilled senior level attorney and the current present director of litigation and advocacy partnerships for Earth Justice. He is also an adjunct professor at Michigan State University, and he specializes in environmental justice. He's a community organizer. He's very passionate about this topic of using law as a tool for both social change and for storytelling to bring more people into the room to have a voice. And so I love, I love this episode. I think he shows so much passion and creativity of how he's been able to tread that line of using law as a form of activism 
and I hope it inspires you as much as it inspired me. So sit down, relax, and take a listen. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Brown Girl Green Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Drutman, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about creative solutions to the climate crisis. Diversity and inclusion is at the core of the show, always talking about uplifting the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, doing the work to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I'm so excited to have today's guest today because we're gonna be talking about the concept of litigation. I know that's a big word, but basically the idea is thinking about when people are saying, okay, you know, corporations are bad or evil and we need to sue them. Like, what does that actually look like? What does it look like for communities to come together and to address environmental justice in a way using the law. And I don't really know as much about that in terms of like what that looks like and what it's like to work on those things. And so I wanted to bring Jeremy onto the show to kind of discuss how litigation can be a tool for you know climate justice, climate activism, and also a tool for storytelling to bring more people into the conversation to advocate for themselves in their communities. And so I love Jeremy to introduce himself about his incredible work on environmental law. And yeah, Jeremy, you can go ahead. Yeah, sure thing, Christy. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I'm always excited to to talk about the issues, but in particular, especially, you know, joint platforms that lift up the issues in a way that allow us to tell the stories of various bodies of work that are taking place, in particular from a justice standpoint. So again, my name is Jeremy Orr. I work as the Director of Litigation and Advocacy Partnerships at an organization named Earth Justice, a large public interest law firm that, that, that works to protect the environment and public health all over the country. I live in Detroit. That's where I'm from. That's where I'm you know, born and raised, and, and I work remotely from here. And at Earth Justice, I serve as a director of litigation and advocacy partnerships where I work to ensure that our attorneys and our staff are building meaningful, mutually trusting partnerships to deliver on our litigation and policy work. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And to kick us off, I just wanted to ask you, why did you feel becoming an attorney was necessary for addressing the climate crisis? Yeah, sure thing. You know, I'll start by saying, you know, I didn't feel it was necessary, right? Because I think there are many different roles and ways that we can all chip in and tackle the climate crisis, whether it's, you know, through formal education, like going to law school, or whether it's through our lived experiences of being subject to environmental degradation, right? We all have something to contribute to it. But for me, I knew going to law school was the, the avenue I wanted to take because it would allow me to advocate in a way that appealed to me. I got my start as a community organizer here in Michigan, right out of college, you know, around 22, 23 years old. And I did all types of organizing from transportation, affordable housing, youth violence and drug prevention. And there was this one particular issue that really stood out to me. And it was, envir- it was an environmental issue. It was a cleanup of a contaminated Superfund site. And at that point, I hadn't really had any real exposure to environmental advocacy and environmental policy or environmental law. What I knew in that moment was a couple of things. One, as we engaged kind of the government around these issues, it felt like I didn't really understand what was going on, the things they were talking about, the language they were using, the laws and policies, it it all felt foreign to me. And then the other thing was there were no people of color in the decision-making processes and as you can imagine, as we're engaging in government, there's a lot of lawyers involved too, right? And none of the lawyers were, were people of color. 
and we were advocating on behalf of a community of color where this environmental degradation was taking place. So those two things really stood out to me. One, I didn't understand what was going on and I wanted to go back to school and get an education that would allow me to process information, break it down, and then communicate it to communities in a way that they can engage themselves, mm -hmm. right? And then the second part was wanting to be able to represent the community that I come from and communities that look like ours in a higher space, right? In a legal advocacy space. So uh, that's what kind of drove me to it, this idea of being able to better communicate information, complex information to engage more meaningfully and be able to protect and defend and represent our communities in these spaces where we don't always have representation. Mm. So in a way, becoming a lawyer was an avenue for you to be able to like bring that representation, to be able to yeah, tell those stories and represent communities that you felt otherwise like wouldn't have access to those spaces. And you were like, okay, I'm then I'm going to insert myself and be the one to be able to create that representation and create those pathways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I think it's both, right? Access to information and then access to the, the, the power, right? And, and the tables where decisions are being made and not just, you know, the access for myself, but be able to step into those spaces to then create the opening for communities to also mm. come to those tables, right? So it was really just me creating a space at the table to then hand it off to communities to do the work that they know, already know how to do to protect themselves. Oh, I love that. And, you know, that's a big part of what I know Earth Justice is about. I've done work, you know, campaigns and content working with Earth Justice. And, you know, something that I really admired is that they're always about, like, centering communities in the center of these fights when it comes to environmental justice, which is, you know, I think a strong asset of the organization. But I was wondering, like, in your own work, like, what are some of the cases that you have worked on with Earth Justice that you feel have had the biggest impact? Yeah, I think that's right. Going back to what you said, Earth Justice being an organization that's been really intentional about centering those partnerships in our in our litigation and policy advocacy. And that's really what my actual role is about, right? At Earth Justice, I don't do as much or, or really any kind of litigation directly anymore, but my role in my department, the litigation and advocacy partnership team was created to do just that, right? To ensure that our our attorneys are centering community, well, partnering with clients that are impacted, partnering with community clients, partnering with community organizations, and centering them in our litigation and advocacy so that it's led, you know, it's led by them, right? And we're taking the orders from them. And I think the role that I'm in is really unique for a, a big green organization uh, like ours. I don't think I've seen somebody, you know, similar to my role at some of the other organizations. So it's a, it's a really cool opportunity. And as I mentioned, for me, I, I don't necessarily engage in the litigation myself, but being able to support the work of our attorneys and making sure that they're partnering with, with clients has been great. I know, you know, one example we had, we had our, our FERC team that does federal, you know, energy advocacy, uh, you know, was able to connect them with a local NAACP chapter in a community where, where rulemaking was coming up and federal rulemaking was coming up and this community was looking to be represented and have their voice heard. And our attorneys on our FERC practice was, you know, also looking to actually really lift up a community that would be impacted by the issue of rulemaking. And, you know, we were able to, partner the two and and just you know go through this process in a way that was so meaningful and impactful for that local NAACP chapter and I, you know, I remember them reaching back out and just talking about how grateful they were for an organization like Earth Justice to be able to step up and provide that technical expertise where otherwise they wouldn't have necessarily been able to that's just kind of one example of the work that yeah. I do at least that I do on a daily basis and of course we have a, an amazing you know climate and clean energy practice that does you know work all over the country you know I know we have a our Midwestern team is working with the community in Flint to push back on a on an asphalt plant that's being built right in the middle of a black low income 
neighborhood that they've been able to engage EPA on and moving in the direction of possible, like, you know, a possible settlement, right, which, which has been huge in a place like Flint that's already experienced so much environmental degradation and injustice as well. You know, so just thinking of examples like that take place all, all over the country, and it's really cool to be a part of that work. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So so a big part of the work, it sounds like, you know, I've heard the term like radical listening tossed around in advocacy circles where it's like you're very much focusing on like, you know, listening to the community and understanding their needs and then like also kind of doing an assessment of like, yeah, like you were saying, maybe some of the skill gaps or information gaps that are necessary is are those like the some of the core processes that go into forming those partnerships. I'm just wondering if there's other like best practices or other ways that like, you know, in your position, you all yeah. form those relationships because I'm sure that takes some time to do that. Yeah, no, it does. Like you mentioned, like building those relationships, like you have to build trust. And the only way you can build trust is through conversation, right? And one of the things I always encourage our attorneys to do as we enter these communities and look to partnership, it's like, listen more than you talk, right? What's the saying, right? Is that there's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth, right? And that's serious though, right? It's, you know, we do have some level of expertise, but it's always important for our attorneys to understand, like, hey, these communities that we represent, like they're the real experts. They may not have the, the, the titles and the credentials, but they have the lived experience and they can really tell you what's going on on the ground. And that's part of my work. And a big part of my work has been how do we operationalize that, right? My experience as an organizer has taught me how to listen and do the one-on-ones and find those shared values and find those shared points of respect, right? And, and build on that, right? To build that relationship. And what I've been doing throughout my legal career was marrying the two, right? Like marrying the organizing with the legal advocacy to to do my work in a very community, lawyering, movement, lawyering way. And my work at Earth Justice has really been, how do I take what's in my head, put it on paper and operationalize it? And like you mentioned, there are just some core principles that, you know, that, that are paramount to building meaningful relationships with communities, especially frontline communities. And listening is at the top of that list, right? Just being able to really fully listen, appreciate, and understand what communities are going through, what communities need, and what solutions communities want. Because oftentimes, you know, attorneys can come into communities thinking they know the solution. It may be litigation, it may not be, but oftentimes communities can tell you exactly what they want and need. And that should be the driver of how we do our advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many barriers that are put up by the legal system that like, makes it unnecessarily hard for marginalized communities to actually be able to advocate for themselves, whether that be like language barriers or like the cost to even have a lawyer, the cost to be able to do data collection when it comes to quote unquote citizen science. All of that stuff requires so many resources and a lot of like access that a lot of communities like don't even A, like have access to, or B, like don't have like the legal jargon or language for. And so it's already like setting them in a position of vulnerability where it's like, they know that something's wrong anecdotally and they can express that and tell stories, but to like actually be in those rooms, it seems like, yeah, they're already kind of being put in this position of like, okay, I need to have this form of expertise to be able to actually advocate for myself. So it's like, how do you all like, instill that power in those communities like like how did like what have you seen like i'm just curious because i just feel like you know we saw with like flint michigan like communities for many months to years were saying like you know my kids are getting sick and like i'm not feeling well and all these things and we were seeing it with east palestine like communities also being like okay they're saying that the water is safe but like we're still getting sick so there's always like this like 
denial almost. And it's like, how do you, like, and the communities almost like doubt themselves. And then it can take years for like the evidence to surface up because there needs to be these experts that step in. I don't exactly know what my question and all of that is, but more so like, how do you feel like community members, like how do you feel like your role and the work that you all are doing with Earth Justice is helping like give the power back to those communities? Man, that, like that's a great question. And, and I'll even go back to one of the first thing you said, right? The barriers to access to justice, starting with the language barrier, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I did when I started in this role at Earth Justice over a year ago was centralized translation and interpretation services. Right. I put the data and realized that, okay, our interpretation and translation services, the requests have been kind of, you know, doubling over the last few years. But oftentimes we were getting, I was getting this feedback that, you know, there were a lot of programs and, and attorneys who, who couldn't quite figure out where to go and how to get those resources to our partners. So one of the things my team did was centralize within the organization. So now any attorney, right, in any program who needs translation and interpretation services for their partners, whether it's litigation or any other sort of advocacy, that attorney can literally just come to my team and say, hey, I need this, right? And I already have a list of, of services all over the country, national services and local services, right? Ready to go, right? So that way there's no reason, right, that we struggle with the language barrier because we have the support, the resources, We're, we'll pay for it, right? As, as, as long as it, it helps move the ball along and it makes it easier for our partners and clients to, to get the level of justice that they need and deserve, right? So that, like, that's one of how we, you know, try to put that that, that power back in, in the hands of our clients. And to your point, like, that's really what it's about, right? We show up and we help out, but the work that we do is merely a tool in access to justice, right? Litigation is one form of a tool that can help you get the result of justice that you need, particularly environmental or climate justice, right? There's also the policy advocacy, right? There's also just the sheer political context and political strategy of, of getting your elected and appointed officials to, to do what you want them to do, right? It's other kinds of pressure, and but it's the, all the ways we think about it is how do we center and, and get that power back to them. And I think to your point, right, when you look at a place like Flint, overwhelmingly black, overwhelmingly low income, experienced an environmental crisis in which they were told everything was okay, drink the water's fine, right? They were lied to, right? And you, you think about it that obviously an environmental injustice based on race, right, and, and income, but then you look at a, a community like East Palestine, which is white, right, overwhelmingly white in the kind of middle of nowhere, Ohio, right, which is overwhelmingly conservative and Republican. Yeah. And yet the same people are lying to them, right? Like the same folks are lying to them. Yeah. And you get into this issue of, OK, like we, there's clearly disparities in environmental and climate justice as it gears toward, you know, as it trends toward, mm-hmm. towards race and ethnicity and income. But man, now you look at, you know, you see it, it's more in common right, then we realize, and the big part of that is, is, you know, like we're not, you know, we have a common enemy and it, and it isn't each other, right? The common enemy are the, the people who are continuing to pollute our communities, the people are continuing to oppress us, right, and continuing to feed us poison, right? In the same way that, you know, they were telling people just, you know, within last week, the water is fine to drink in East Palestine. And I'm looking at the water, my background is in water. I'm looking at the water like that, like I wouldn't drink it, that. nor would I yeah, suggest like I anybody drink it. these TikToks and people are like throwing stuff in. Throwing the rock, like, yeah. And it's like, like yeah, it's like all the film on the water and the water is turning colors when they throw stuff yeah. into it. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why would I drink that? Why would I let my pet drink that? Why would I Whoa. wash my clothes if that's my water source? Like, yeah, yeah it's the same scenario, right? And, and it's really, a, it's, it's yeah. as much as it's about race, it's also about power. Right. And, and, and how, how do we shift that power back to the community so that they don't experience that environmental oppression? 
you know, what are some like wins or victories that you've seen? Like, it can either be stuff that you've like personally have like worked on or things that you've just witnessed in the environmental litigation space where you felt like it truly was a win for communities. Because it just feels like those are so few and far between sometimes because it can take years. And so I'm just wondering from your experience, like of doing this work for so long, like what are some wins that you've seen? Yeah, no, they really are. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Like we don't see wins in this field often. And and I think that's across many fields of social justice, right? We work yeah. really hard for really long to get these wins. And oftentimes they're big wins, but the, it's the little wins along the way that 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 are, are important and they keep us going. I think, you know, the Flint water crisis is is one while we're, you know, while we're still watching that, you know, kind of kind of play out as they as they get to nearing the end of replacing all the pipes. It's taken much longer than it should have. But even the front end of that, right, I, I worked at Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, prior to me joining there, there was a litigation team of amazing attorneys. I think all women litigated the settlement to replace all the lead pipes in Flint, which was a huge win. And then by the time I got there, the settlement was being enforced and I got to join that settlement team to help enforce the replacement of all the lead pipes in Flint. And there were you know, times where, you know, we had to go back to court to sue the city to make sure that they were staying on task and doing what they were supposed to be doing. And But being a part of that was really significant. I think that, you know, for, for this work, I think it's a win to be able to say, hey, we're going to replace all the lead pipes, right, in this city is huge. It's a huge deal. I think the same thing, I, I had a chance to work directly on the Benton Harbor water crisis uh, just, you know, just last year, actually the year before last, where myself and another attorney filed a, a, an emergency petition to replace all the lead pipes in Benton Harbor after they experienced water crisis that was at the level, actually higher level than Flint, as far as we're concerned, right, was probably worse than Flint. You know, that all the pipes got replaced within a year, right? And I think stuff like that is significant. And those are ones I've been directly involved in, even thinking about things that I haven't been directly involved in, but seeing, I think, this issue of, of of General Iron in Chicago, right, where there was a permit to move, to shut down the metal recycling, metal scrapping plant in the north side, the wealthier white part of the community of the city, and move it to the south side. Right, literally pick it up and move all the pollution and environmental degradation to the south side of Chicago, which we know as black and brown community, a significant immigrant community, Mexican immigrant community. And that got blocked, right? And that took a that took years of advocacy, right, and challenging the permit. And that was sheer grassroots advocacy. You had amazing organizers and activists going on a hunger strike, right? Really call attention to it. You had a number of a, a, attorneys working to file filed Title VI complaints, right, and, and really challenged the city. And, and ultimately, they came out and said, we're not, you know, we're going to deny that permit. We're not going to allow them to move forward. And that doesn't happen often. But when it does happen, it's huge. And it shows what's possible when, like, we really organize, advocate, use all of our tools and, and put the pressure on. I love that so much. No, thank you for highlighting those case studies. I think sometimes people can just feel so discouraged that, like, you know, the law is fixed against our communities and that there's not much people can do. And I think there's some truth in that, right? Like the legal system in the U.S. is kind of what created a lot of the conditions that led to things around redlining, that led to economic disinvestment in communities, that led to the conditions and the vulnerabilities for environmental racism to thrive, right? And so I think it is a, there's truth in that, but I think there's also hope that like it can also be a powerful tool as people learn the language and learn how these things work, that it can be a tool to, to still stand up for yourself and your community. And it may take a long time and you might not even see those wins in your lifetime, but just like all social justice movements, like you said, you're curving closer to be able to carve out those pathways to ideally make it better for future generations. So I love that you presented all of that for sure. 
So, you know, moving forward off of that, you know, when it comes to legal stuff, just thinking about a lot of the discourse happening today on the internet around, you know, companies not doing the best things and corporations not doing the best thing. You know, there's been this emergence of quote unquote greenwashing. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people are like, oh, that company's greenwashing, that company's this and that. But I'm just wondering, like, is there actually like legal action people can take against greenwashing? I know it's so much of a gray area, but I just wanted to know your like candid thoughts about that. I was just curious. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure, especially when we talk about private corporations, right? That like, that's a different avenue where these private corporations really have no responsibility to yeah. us, right? And oftentimes it's just like, it's marketing ploys and it's, yeah. you know, roundabout ways to seem like they're doing the right thing or good things when they really aren't right Be beyond like false advertising a lot of times you can skew the data and skew the information so you know i, I think as it relates to corporations right it, there, there probably isn't a, a lot of opportunity for legal legal action but that doesn't mean that we can't hold them accountable through other public pressure you know accountability and shaming if necessary right i think that's really really important nonetheless yeah. but from a legal standpoint you know probably probably not as many opportunities but you know mm -hmm. that all that to say, you know, greenwashing is very real. We see it, we experience it. Those of us, you know, who work in the field, see, pick up on it pretty quickly and, you know, totally. realize there's, there's stuff going on, but, but yeah. No, that's really helpful to, to think about. It's like, it's one of those things where like, also like in the past, like it's good to look at like past court cases. So in a way, like it's kind of the reverse for like some consumers or even, you know, people who are interested in understanding if a corporation is greenwashing, you can actually look into like some of their legal history, right? To see if like there has been like a lawsuit, like a class action lawsuit or whatever against that company. Like that gives you some signs that they're not necessarily like for communities or like actually trying to come up with solutions that are hold holding themselves accountable. So I think people could actually use, you know, legal information to kind of give you some more of those feelers or data points to maybe make a bit more of a comprehensive assessment about a company. So I love that you yeah. brought, brought that up as well. And so I'm just wondering like, you know, this is such a good conversation, but just from what you're seeing with like, even what's happened recently with like East Palestine, like, do you think like in a situation like that, like how can community members begin? Like, it just seems like, I, I don't know if you know what like the situations going on there with like, you know, attorneys or anyone going on the ground there. But I'm like, you know, obviously it's getting a lot of press, but is that a situation where like basically like lawyers will come in and like meet with the community? Like, I'm just wondering how those processes kind of work. Like, yeah, yeah, there, there, I there are- I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, there are a few different ways. I think in this instance, you know, I, I think many of the, the kind of legal organizations have, have kind of been taking a step back and, and waiting to see how the community responds and in particular waiting for the opportunity or not even just the opportunity, but are we invited in, right? Our community is asking us to, to step in and help. And I, and I think that's important in a, in a situation like that, right? Like being invited in, especially we're in the, we're in the immediate fallout of it, right? And, and, and so I know affirmatively Earth Justice has not been plugged in, you know, has not been involved and been on the ground there, but we've been monitoring it and, and trying to get a better understanding of what's going on. You know, my understanding is the same with or big organizations like in RDC, right? I've also been monitoring and, and but not necessarily on the ground. My understanding is that there is the local law clinic in Cleveland. I think it's Case Western Law School, their environmental law clinic is directly plugged in on the ground, starting to work with clients to figure out, 
you know, what next steps are. And that makes sense, right? Because they're they're a law clinic that's in the community. They know what's going on. They can they can be there and they can be there to partner. But I'd imagine you're going to have big organizations like ours, like in Justice, like NRDC, who potentially could have a role to play to you know, protect, you know, those communities and defend those communities down the line, you know, there's no guarantee. I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that we will, but I, but I think there's definitely space. And to your point, oftentimes in a, in a scenario like that, I think the biggest, the biggest priority is making sure everybody's safe, healthy, and that they're getting the actual resources they need to remain healthy. And that's what, you know, it seems like has, has kind of at least been, you know, as I've kind of watched the news and seen EPAs, you know, on the ground there and, and, you know, trying to make sure that folks are getting what they need to stay healthy. And, and you know, so I think that's important, but I wouldn't be, a, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if not too far from now, you're going to start seeing more conversations around legal action that, that, sh- that necessarily should be taking place to fix, clean up that community, fix it and make, and make those residents whole environmentally, you know, health-wise and financially, quite frankly. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, I'm someone who also comes from a previous organizing background. And so I love meeting people who also have organizing backgrounds. Like, it must be like, you know, it's one of those things where like you go from a space that's very like grassroots to now, you know, working for a bigger organization or like, you know, you're in the red tape, you're in the bureaucracy. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you find the balance between those things of like, you know, maintaining, you know, your theories of change and like your activism while also knowing that like you want to work within the system and like, you know, work with these institutions. Like, how do you find the balance between those two things in your own yeah. work and life? Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating, right? And it, 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 it requires a lot of patience, right? A, a lot of patience that I necessarily didn't have when I first started the work that I have some I have more patience now, right? And be, yeah. because there's, I look at patience in two ways, right? It's the patience within the organizational work that I do, right? Which I've managed to develop a patience for. But then there's also the patience or impatience of like wanting to get something done, right? Like that, that's the part that, that I think kind of helps me balance, right? So I recognize like, okay, there's, you know, there's protocols and processes, especially when we're talking about law, right? Like, like to your point, like coming from organizing, it was, you know, we organized the communities. We were meeting regularly. When we when an issue came up, we were ready for public action immediately. We could mobilize within a day. We could mobilize the same day, right, to get some action going and begin to hold people accountable. And that's not the same with law, right? And let alone law at a big organization like an herb justice, right, where there are processes and protocols in, in how we take cases, how they get approved, who approves them, right? What resources and or what limitations do we have, right? So so there is that, but. I think I appreciate most is that these organizations have begun to become more flexible, have started to become more nimble and realize that, you know, communities don't move at this and the work doesn't move at the speed that we want it to move at. But when things happen and we have to be ready to, you know, to respond to that and show up in ways that communities need us. So I think a big part of that, you know, happens between the various teams. So while we do mostly litigation, we have a policy advocacy team, right, that that can kind of plug in directly and help kind of think through solutions. We have a partnership team, right? My team, right? That can, that can kind of at least be responsive and, and, and kind of provide some, some support in the meantime, while we figure out like the, the long-term strategies and, you know, we have a comms team and a development team that also offer support to our partners, right? We're needed. So I think we figured out ways to provide various types of support in a, in a much more, in a much faster manner beyond just the litigation aspect of it. But to your point, yeah, it's it's hard coming from like traditional grassroots organizing to practicing law at a big six hundred person organization and 
having to follow not only the processes of the organization, but then the processes of the court too, right? The court rules, like it's all, it's a lot. It requires patience, so. Yeah, no, I get you. And I love that you brought up that like, you know, people think it's just one picture, you know, they see the Aaron Brockovich like films of the world and they're like it's just this one person who took down this corporation right and then you know you even watch these tiktoks or these videos and it's just like i as one person you know can't do everything and like i'm not gonna overhaul the whole system and there's like this very dystopic vision on it all which yes again like with the frustration it's like i as an individual like you know, I am limited in the amount that I can do versus like this big system that needs to have a major overhaul, right? When we're addressing the climate crisis and when it comes to these corporations that like, it seems very difficult to hold them accountable, right? Unless like something happens and then it's like, okay, but if something happens, we need to prioritize the community. And then like, we don't even have as much time to hold the corporation accountable because right. we're right. trying to make sure the community's all right. So anyways, yep. I just feel the frustration and, and I like, admire that you brought up that like there needs to be comms people there needs to be policy people like it's not just up to lawyers and nor yeah. will it ever be just up to lawyers to be right. able to create these methods of accountability and to be able to overhaul a very broken system it's going to require so many different levers methodologies and theories of change ultimately right yeah. and i love that i just love that like you embody that right like it's like you have this background of being very community rooted, but you also understand like how you've had to navigate these systems and try to pull levers where you can. And I think that like, that is such a difficult line to tread. Yeah. And so anyways, I commend you for that. That's, that's crazy. But anyways, on another, <laughs> another note on that, um, you know, for people just like building off of that, like how can, you know, the everyday person who's not a lawyer, how do you think, but they want to engage in climate justice and they feel like, you know, they want to take action, like, how can they engage with the law, like, in a way that they could educate themselves in their communities, they don't have to, like, necessarily wait for an earth justice to come in, maybe they'll, you know, maybe just want to read up on things, learn, you know, what are some tools that they could be putting in their tool belt from, like, a legal standpoint, even if, like, they're not lawyers, to at least yeah. begin to observe what's going on in their community, to report things, I don't know, things like that, I'm just wondering if you have tips on that. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. I know there's, there's for me, a, a few different things I always tell people. One, like I, much of the information I get beyond the work that I do, like I, I always try to follow like, like reputable journalists who are like reporting on these stories, right? And, and, and reputable, just, just multimedia, but folks like yourself, right, who are lifting up these stories and reporting them. So I think that's one, right? Like, like you know, not just simply reading about it, but finding the information of, of credible, reputable sources. And so rather that's, you know, for me, I do it in twofold, like finding local sources that I, that I trust and know are going to report objectively on the stories and, and report the truth. And then you have the national sources, right, that are reporting on some of the broader, bigger issues. So I think one is, is just, just understanding the information from from those sources, right. I, I think, is 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 so important to to be able to understand it. I think too, right? It sounds simple, right? But but being able to to talk about that information and, and share that information out to your family, your friends, your your community, right? It, you know, mm. like we oftentimes we you know even like you talk about social media, you're sitting on Twitter or Instagram all day, and you may not think much about it, but there's so many times where I'll just you know retweet a story or share a story, and then you know hour later, somebody will text me like, hey, I saw that story you, you, you shared. Can you tell me more about it? Or, you know, somebody will DM me about stuff, right? I, I think that's, you're thinking of ways, accessible ways to easily get involved, right? And then also, too, I, I think there are, 
you know, as we talk about the, how can the individual get involved, I think like joining some of the, the many kind of coalitions and, and, and organizations either within your community or, or nationally that are talking about these issues and, and working to tackle these issues, I think are, is so important, right? And at this point in time, right, where as opposed to a few years ago, right, there's no shortage of organizations, grassroots organizations that are organizing and, and you don't need much to be involved, right? You just, just need to have the, the, the time, right, and the willingness to commit to oftentimes some very small tasks, right, to, yeah. to get plugged in. So I, I, I think it's those things, right? I think it's yeah. it's finding, you know, finding the resources and the reputable resources. It's communicating about those issues and then it's joining with other people, right, so that we're not just the individual in our silo, but that we're actually building community that, that can talk about and, and, and advocate for these issues. No, I love that. I mean, I, I think it's just one of those things where like, I think people think you have to get this master's PhD, get these higher ed degrees to get involved um, to make a difference. But like, I think, you know, I, it's not, it's not. Everyone has their own journey. And it's like, even for yourself, like you realize like that was your pathway that made sense, but it doesn't have to be every person's pathway, right? It's just right. like, this is the way you utilize the tools and the knowledge of your community to, to know that this is how you wanted to, you know, be in your truth, stand up and, and take action. Yep. And I think if, you know, that's authentic to you. And it's like, everyone needs to find yep. what that authentic path is that will really make them feel connected to their community, connected to the causes and the issues going on and to take action the most strategically way possible. Not trying to be, not trying to be this like ultimate expert because we don't have time for that anymore. We don't have time right. to wait for everyone to get PhDs. We're going to be dead by the time right. we be, right. we're going to wait for everyone to have a PhD and a law degree. Like we don't have time for that. <laughs> we just don't, we don't have time. Yeah. We just don't. yeah, I agree. Like anyways. <laughs> It's like partner with the lawyers. You don't have to be a lawyer, even though we have amazing people doing that work. Yeah. And it's just great to learn, learn from you all. And there's so much opportunity for partnership and information sharing that I think people who work on these cases can continue to share with communities so they can use these tools, learn these case studies, right? Like even finding out about legal case studies. I mean, I've done a lot of content in the past on legal case studies around communities and like people always find those really fascinating because people are like oh this is an example of taking this very you know not theoretical but just like textbook issue around quote-unquote environmental justice but you actually see how it pans out and it tells a story right and so i think if people were going to use the law as a tool for their activism use it to study case studies understand how communities have stood up for themselves using these tools to understand how that actually pans out what are the barriers and limitations and then use these other tools around organizing communications joining organizations to get involved in addition to understanding the litigation piece so anyways you made me realize that look at that we're tying all the dots <laughs> together i love it but anyways yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, on the Brown Girl Green show, the last thing I like to end off with is just like advice, advice for listeners. Obviously, you gave, gave advice on how people can take action. But like, in terms of just like navigating a path, right? Like, yeah. I think there's so much imposter syndrome or, you know, struggles and doubts that people can face when they want to take action on these issues. I'm just wondering, like, what is your advice for people on like, how do they how can they feel empowered to go on their own journey like what what are your words of advice it's really it's really about staying engaged and, and staying involved because I, I i genuinely believe that we're on the cusp of like transformational 
change as it relates to, to climate and environmental justice, right? And, and I say that because we're seeing, you know, especially in the U.S., right, we're seeing historic investments to tackle to tackle issues of, of, of climate and water in ways that we've never seen before, literal historic financial investments in ways that we haven't seen before. We're seeing, you know, not, not just rhetoric, but actual action to change our climate and clean energy infrastructure and change our water infrastructure, right, to, to deliver on a healthy environment and communities. We're seeing states around the country pass pass constitutional amendments to, to ensure the, the right to clean air and clean water. And, and, and all that to say, right, I, I know it feels like climate change is a daunting task. I know it feels like, you know, protecting and cleaning up all the water in America is a daunting task, but like the movement needs you, right? It, it, it needs us to stay engaged, right? I know we're, we're, as we're also seeing historic investments, we're also seeing historic pushback from polluters and corporations who want to maintain the status quo. And the reason they're spending so much money fighting back, right, and pushing back and greenwashing, doing all these things in the way that they are, is because they know that they're like, we're right on the cusp of victory and transformational change. And, and this is, this feels like a last stand, right, of, of industry and polluters to push back with all that they have. And so all that to say, like, you know, stay encouraged, stay involved. As I said, like the, the movement needs you and it feels like we are right there. So love it. No, thank you so much. And how can people stay in touch with you and the work that you do? Yeah, sure thing. I, I'm not a huge social media person, but I do have Twitter and I do have LinkedIn. So on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just Jeremy F. Orr. That's it. Just same on LinkedIn as well. I post a lot about, you know, my work and climate and environmental justice as well as like sports and hip hop music and other stuff. But yes, you can follow me there and, and on LinkedIn and on Twitter for sure. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining today's episode. I learned so much and just enjoyed connecting with you as your LinkedIn friend. He really is fire on LinkedIn. You gotta follow him on LinkedIn. <laughs> but yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of Brown Girl Green. I'm Christy Drutman and I interview diverse environmental leaders and advocates about creative solutions to the climate crisis. And I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us this week. Thank you.